Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning, Antioch. Man, it's good being with you all. So my neighborhood was friendly growing up. We had neighborhood parties and lots of friends on the street. And, you know, we'd have conversations in the front lawn together. Um, I'm going to try not to kick communion over. That's a, I move around a lot. I got to get uh, and, and so we had a great neighborhood growing up, lots of friends and all. Uh, but one time we had a falling out with one of our neighbors. And so I was riding my bike. I think it was like second grade elementary school and riding my bike through the neighborhood. And one of our neighbors had a golden retriever who was off the leash, kind of on the loose. And I saw this golden retriever barking and coming towards me. You know, I was on this field kind of nearby, near, near, near their house. And so I went from kind of like that slow, casual, laid back ride to like the, whoo, like up on all, you know, like, like pumping it and huffing and trying to get away. And I saw this dog just barreling for me. And this golden retriever, you know, like leaped through midair. I saw his jaws wide open and just, boom, bit my butt, you know. This golden retriever retrieved a chunk out of my gluteus maximus, right? And so I'm like, ah, you know, I, I go home and I, I kind of run inside and I'm crying, mom, mom, I got bit by this dog. And I wake up my dad who had been working the night shift the night before. So my dad now, he's kind of a take care of business kind of person, right? And so my dad takes my hand in one hand and his gun in the other and walks me down the street, like outside, and all my neighborhood friends are everything out. And so they all come crowding around, like, what is going on? And they're, they're from a distance. He's got a gun. They're, they're following from a distance. But they're walking, like, what's going on? We walk two houses down to this neighbor, and we come up to the golden retriever. Now, fortunately for this golden retriever, he had a twin. Right? So they were twin golden retrievers. And so I'm up front with my dad, and he's like, which one was it? Which one was it? You know? And I'm like, I don't know. I can't tell them apart. I'm not sure which one it was. And thankfully, having a twin saved that dog's life. And then the neighbor kind of comes out of his house. is like, what is going on? And let's just say they had words, right? You know? And then we went home, and we never spoke to that neighbor again. So we would avert eye contact when getting the mail. We would, you know, kind of not speak at the neighborhood parties. We kind of avoid each other and all. Um, and my question for us this morning is, was he a neighbor, right? Was he a neighbor to us and were we a neighbor to him? Now, technically that word neighbor, it comes from a root word that means near, to be near to or in close proximity to. And it's true. We had geographical proximity. We lived two houses down. We were near to one another, but if we never spoke to one another, if we never saw one another, if we had unaddressed animosity and hostility between us, then were we truly neighbors? Well, this morning, Jesus is going to tell us what it means to truly be a neighbor. As was mentioned, we're in Luke chapter 10, and so if you have your Bible and you want to open up there, uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10 this morning. And this is the famous story of the Good Samaritan, but this story has a context, and the context is this question around what does it mean to be a neighbor, and who are we called to be a neighbor to? Now, the reality is you and I, we live near all sorts of people, like in our neighborhoods and at coworkers and the barista at the coffee shop we like to go to. We're around all sorts of people. But what does Jesus call us to when it comes to how we are to be a neighbor? 
to those that we are near. The title for the message this morning is, Won't You Be My Neighbor? And so let's get our Mr. Rogers on and jump into Luke chapter 10 and find out what Jesus would have for us in terms of how we can be a neighbor. So chapter 10, verses, let's start in verse 25. We read, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now when we hear expert in the law, we think a lawyer, don't be thinking like briefcase, law and order, whatever. This is more like an expert in God's law, the Old Testament. This is like the Bible scholar. And he's coming and he wants to test Jesus. He says, teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? And this man answered, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But, big but here, he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? First thing we see here is that we are tempted to ask sometimes, who is my neighbor? We sometimes ask, who is my neighbor? Who are those that we are actually obligated to? Now, so this lawyer approached Jesus and he essentially asks this question. Again, this is like the Bible scholar and he comes up and he knows the law. He's read the Old Testament. He knows his, his commands, his verses. He's like, what does it mean and do I need to do to inherit eternal life? The life everlasting that comes from God. And Jesus asks, asks him back, well, what do you read? How, how do you interpret it? How do you read the law of the Old Testament? And he gives what would have been a common answer back in the day. He first cites the uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This comes from the Shema, the famous prayer of the Old Testament that Israelites would recite three times a day. Many Orthodox Jews still do to this day. And so he's citing this verse that was central to their understanding of God's people's understanding of what was at the heart of the Old Testament. And then he goes on and he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. And here he's quoting from Leviticus 19. And so this was a standard answer. And I think often, like this person, like our biggest issue sometimes is not that we don't know what God says, but we can have a reluctance of actually wanting to do it and to live it out, right? And so Jesus is like, yeah, you, you gave your own answer. Like, do it, do this, and you will live. But it already told us he was wanting to test Jesus, which is probably not a good idea, right? And now he wanted to justify himself. It's sort of like Jesus just kind of put it back on him. He's like, all right, I, I need to save face with the crowd that's looking on right now. He's like, well, hey, who is my neighbor? Now, when he asks, who is my neighbor, he is wanting an out. He's wanting an out to who he's obligated to love. He's wanting to put a limit on who he would be called to serve. And this is the context of the Good Samaritan story. It's important because it frames what Jesus is about to tell us in this famous story. The question of who is my neighbor? Who am I obligated to love? What he's trying to do here is he's trying to justify himself against Jesus. He wants to unneighbor some people, right? He wants to unneighbor. And the reality is we want to unneighbor some people. When I think about this in our society, like our desire to unneighbor some people from us, I think historically this was probably most prominent in areas like race or class or gender or some of those things. But when I think about our moment and our context today, I think the way that this shows up the most as I read it today is with political polarization, right? We want to unneighbor many people. There's an interesting study that uh, was done, some research that was done that found 42% 
of Democrats and 42% of Republicans think the other side is not only wrong or has a different opinion, but is evil or the enemy. Scientific American, the journal, reported on research showing that we no longer think, hey, back in the day, it was kind of like, well, you have a different opinion. We can talk about it and we can disagree. We can even disagree strongly, but we can still go get a drink after, right? We can still go hang out after. We can still be neighbors to one another after, even if we strongly disagree in our convictions about some of these things. They said today, now, the research suggests that an increasing number of people see the, those of a other political persuasion as evil, the enemy who are out to destroy your way of life, that they are abhorrent or alien, immorally repugnant, wicked, and contemptible. And I don't know about you, but I've seen this as a pastor. I see it in a number of families in our church where now uh, parents and children, maybe they're separated by distance, but, but kids and parents, parents and their grown-up children now who will no longer talk to each other, who won't have Thanksgiving dinner because one side or the other, because like, I just can't be around them because of their views or opinions on things like this. I found it uh, interesting, you know, the last few years, I, I am like, okay, we live in a purple area of town that's got a lot of red, a lot of blue, right? And, um, and I said, okay, I'm going to try as a pastor, I want to try and understand, so I'm going to try and listen to dominant kind of news sources on both sides. So I, I found myself immersing myself in, in some podcasts and mainstream news sources. And what I realized was like, oh my gosh, if this was all I was hearing, I would hate the other side. I think they're evil. And if this was all I was hearing, I would hate the other side. I think they're totally evil. And it was interesting because as was mentioned, I was in Portland, you know, uh, so I moved about four years ago from Portland, which is like progressive echo chamber, right? And I moved to Arizona, an area that deep red in a number of areas, right? Like a red state. And what I found was the perceptions that many of my friends in Portland had of people in Phoenix were totally wrong. And the perceptions that my friends in Phoenix have of people in Portland was totally wrong. And yet what we find is this increasing desire in our nation to go, people that we live alongside to and share a country with, we want to unneighbor them and say they are no longer my neighbor. They're outside the sphere of neighbor love and responsibility towards. I think this is one of the reasons why the recent documentary on Mr. Rogers blew up. How many of you saw that? Anybody see the Mr. Rogers documentary? Won't you be my neighbor, right? Now, this was fascinating because in this documentary, I always thought of Mr. Rogers. I saw him as a kid growing up. I was always just kind of simple, whatever. But we actually see in the documentaries how, you know, there was a lot more depth than many of us realized going on. And he was making things accessible to kids, but he was dealing with like war and divorce and assassinations and grief and loss. And yet he was communicating in a way that was accessible to children. And as he was doing it, he was crossing boundaries. He was crossing boundaries of race and of disabilities. And most significantly for him, of crossing the boundary to children who could often just be seen as, oh, they're just kids, to like going, no, they have emotional lives. They need to be treated with dignity and respect and raised up to understand these things. And when he was asked in this documentary, like, what's behind that phrase, won't you be my neighbor? He said, it's an invitation to someone who's different from you to draw close. It's an invitation for them to draw close. Won't you be my neighbor? And I wonder this morning, for you and I, are you seeking to unneighbor or to be a neighbor? Like in this particular moment that we're in, have you allowed some of the polarization and the rhetoric and even the animosity and hatred that is characterizing our nation to seep into your heart and to start to frame how you think of a large portion of our neighboring populations? Or do you 
hear Jesus' call to look on even those that you might strongly disagree with, whatever it is, as going, but they are a neighbor that I am obligated to, and they fall within the command of Jesus to love those who are near to me, even if we see the world and experience the world differently. We have an epidemic of loneliness these days, and I wonder how powerful it is as for us as the church to have a moment where you and I, where we make God's call to love concrete and we are stepping out and reaching out to meet and connect with and embrace. One of the families of this church who welcomed us to their breakfast table this morning and got to meet people I didn't know, but they crossed the boundary to welcome us in and, and connect with us. And I wonder how powerful would it be if we were known not as people who were building boundaries, but who were building bridges. And the call for you to be someone who's not necessarily constructing fences, but crossing them to meet your neighbors here in Bend. And to get to know what's striking amidst all the polarization, I've found so many times when people, you know, I'm sure you've had it here, we've had there where people are angry and they're crushing, you know, and I found the power of the ear when you sit down for a conversation and whatever they're ranting about on social media and like, can you tell me what you're concerned about? I found most people just want to be heard. And once they're heard, the temperature in the room goes down and we're able to enter into being neighbors again, to listening to one another, seeking to know one another. So Jesus, in this conversation with this man, he asks, who is my neighbor? And Jesus goes on to tell him a story to try and speak to his heart. So let's pick up in verse 29. I'm sorry, verse 30, Jesus' response. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, a priest, we got a priest, it's a good guy, man of God, right? Here he comes. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So, too, a Levite, this is the priestly tribe representing God, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Jesus says here that it's easier sometimes to move away when you see a neighbor in need. It can be easier for us to move away from a neighbor that we see in need. Uh, The priest and the Levite, they moved away from this neighbor in need. They actually went around to the other side. It says they were on the Jericho Road, and this uh, road from Jerusalem to Jericho was about an 18-mile hike, right, 18-mile road, and it went downhill. So Jerusalem was up on the mountain, Mount Zion, up a high elevation, and it travels about, um, how long, about a half mile down in elevation to where you get, when you get to Jericho, you're below sea level. So you're on this downhill, winding, descending road, and it was a narrow, curvy road, and it, was, it came to be known even as the Bloody Pass back in the day because it was so often famous for like robbers and violence and things of that nature. And so this guy gets beat up, he's assaulted, he's mugged, he's laying bloody, half-dead, Jesus says, on the side of the road. And the Levite and the priest, they move away from him. They go to the other side and they go around. Now, why did they do this? I think there were likely three possible reasons for why they moved away from him. Right? One of these reasons uh, was they had more important things to do. Right? 
Could have been easy to go, man, I'm, I'm a priest, I'm a Levi, I got responsibilities to God, responsibilities to the temple, responsibilities for my family, responsible for whatever. And so, man, I, I'm too, I have too many important things to do or I'm too important to deal with this right now. I need to get to those important things. Or second option is it could have been that it would have been too much of an inconvenience. Uh, there were purity regulations for the priests and the Levites where if they came into contact with a dead body, uh, that they would actually be richly in, unclean or impure and they would no longer to be, able, be able to perform their temple duties until they had gone through a cleansing and purification process and timeline. So they might have gone, man, it's just, it's too much of an inconvenience. I'll let someone else do it. Or the third reason, and I wonder whether this is most likely, is whether it was fear. Fear that if they actually, if this guy wasn't dead and they took the time to care for him and they put him on their animal and they carried him themselves, it would slow them down and they would be more vulnerable to robber attacks as well. And before we get too harsh on them, I think it's helpful to have a little historical context. Now, uh, the priests often lived in Jericho and worked in Jerusalem. And so they would have these two-week shifts up at the temple and then they would come down. And as they would come down to their homes in Jericho, they would have uh, their pay right? They're what they lived off of, but it wasn't like cash or a credit card, right? It was animals. And now if they came into contact with a dead body, it would not only be them, but also their food and everything, their pay, everything would be put at risk, would be uh, uneatable because it would be richly unclean or impure for them to eat if it came in contact with this dead body. So I can imagine, it's not doesn't excuse what they did, but I can empathize with the sense of like, it's just too much, He's probably not going to make it anyways. Whatever, I'm, I'm just going to move away from this neighbor in need and go around. Fear, inconvenience, and a sense of the important things before us, it can cause us to move away from a neighbor in need. It's interesting, I don't know if you've seen China in recent years, they have been talking about what they call the bad Samaritan problem. It's been called the Bad Samaritan Problem where there's loads of video footage like security cameras or video footage of people who are like this parable who are laying half dead in need of help, wounded, bloody, beaten up, and people, loads of people just seeing it but going around, going around the other way. There's one just heart-wrenching story of a two-year-old girl named Yuewe, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but uh, she was run over by a van, like the front wheels of a van. And the driver realized he had run over someone. And so he stopped, like waiting. And you could imagine him contemplating. And then he ran over the rest of the way with the back wheels as well. And after that, she was still alive. She was still moving and in pain and bloody on the side of the road. 18 people on the video you see walk. It's a video that went viral in China and beyond. You can see 18 people walking around her and kind of going around to not, to not be close until eventually another car ran over her. And it finally, uh, a, a female trash collector, someone who was uh, worked like sanitation, like saw her and took pity on her and came and picked her up and brought her to the hospital. And she was still alive, but they were unable to bring her back to life. And this was one of many of these videos and stories. And the question, uh, many Chinese uh, leaders and experts have been wrestling with, kind of, man, we need to do some soul searching. What is happening that we're avoiding these neighbors in need? And one of the observations has been that some of the psychology behind it, whatever, has been uh, likely rooted in fear often because there is a uh, climate or culture and even a history where a number of scam artists 
will pretend to be wounded, will pretend to be, and if you help them, part of the challenge is if you help someone who appears to be in need, they can then sue you for their wounds or their damages. So there's like an example of a guy who helped an old lady across the street, true story, and she had been hurt by an accident and then she sued him and won. And basically there's no limit, like basically you are responsible for their injuries for the rest of their life, essentially, like related to that thing. And, and so what we're talking about, and they've been working to pass and promote now, are laws that exist in America and many other countries in the world. And guess what these laws are called? Good Samaritan laws, right? And the idea is that if you help someone in need, you're not going to be held responsible for the claims. So if you're, um, it's been important in the opioid crisis in America, where if you're uh, overdose, or if you're using heavy drugs and you you have a friend who's overdosing, if you call the police or the medics to come and help them, Good Samaritan laws say you won't be prosecuted for drug use or whatever you were doing at the time, right? And so the goal of these Good Samaritan laws is going, dude, you don't need to move away from a neighbor in need. And in China, one of these arrests is going like, we want to create a culture, these leaders are saying, where we move towards rather than away from not just our loyalty or obligation to our immediate family, but there's a broader obligation to those who are in need in our broader society, which is what Jesus is pointing to here. And me, I think this can be easy to... Yeah, that makes sense. Someone who's bloody, side of the road, beaten up, mugged, accident, injury. But I've been convicted this week. Um, so I've been preparing this message. I've been in the passage. I found God convicting me about three relationships in particular in this last 10 years or so of my life. Three people I knew. I, I wouldn't say we we're like best friends, but we were friends. We knew each other decently well. And when they were going through really hard times, the loss of a marriage or the loss of a job, and most of them lived out of state even at the time, but realizing, I felt God convicting me, going, they weren't bleeding physically, but they were bleeding out emotionally, spiritually, and realizing for these three friends in particular, I didn't even pick up the phone to call. And I'm impressed, I'm like, why, why is that? Why didn't I pick up the phone even just to call and to check in? I, I might see them, uh, you know, every few years and kind of check in, but like, why didn't I reach out and be proactive to check in on them and to call? And I'm realizing the same three things. Like, one of the things was, man, I felt like just, I got a lot of important things to do. Like, my family and a few new things were going on in our family at the time with our kids and trying to navigate and a few new things were happening, like, at my job and at work, and there was just a lot of important things to do. I didn't even make the time to send them a text or to call or to reach out and check in. Not only that, like the sense of, man, it would be an inconvenience if just, I want to call for five minutes, maybe they want to talk for two hours, and then, you know, and, and also like this fear of going, well, if I do, maybe they've got better friends around them. Would they even want me to, you know, like to talk about it with me? And this fear of going, maybe they'd be angry that I hadn't called yet, you know? And so one of the things this week as I've been preparing this, felt the conviction going, man, I want to go back to those people and apologize. Like, I feel like I was like the priest or the Levite who walked around and moved away from those who were near to me. They might not have been my best friends, may not have been my immediate family, but they were near to me and they were in need. And I walked around, I moved away from a neighbor in need. And I wonder for you this morning, are you moving away from or towards people in need in your life. People who are near you where maybe they are not bleeding physically, but maybe emotionally or spiritually, 
They're bleeding out right now. And like me, maybe you can feel that sense of like, man, I've just got too many important things on my plate right now. I don't have time. But what would it look like I, to, to actually move towards those people, to be a neighbor to them, to draw near rather than move away from? One of the things that's struck me in recent years is how I feel like man, sometimes, not always, there's a proper use, but sometimes we're misusing language like toxic, right? How many hear that where it's like, dude, somebody said something to me, I disagreed with. They had an opinion I don't like. They're toxic, right? I'm going to delete them from my phone, you know, or they, they confronted me on something I did that they had a hard time with. They're toxic. Like, I'm going to ghost them and never talk to them again, right? Like, like, how quick we are today, once a relationship becomes uncomfortable, someone near to us or some kind of whatever, we, we, we ghost them, we delete them, we remove them, we unfriend them, we move away, we block them, we unneighbor them, right? How quick we are to move away from and unneighbor those around us as soon as there's some discomfort. And I wonder who might you have in your life that you've maybe moved away from that Christ is calling you to move towards. And I'm not saying that we, we, we don't need healthy boundaries. I think boundaries can be good. And if I, the, the, there's endless need. And if I ran after everything, man, I, my, my family, my wife would kill me. Right? Like, it's good to have healthy boundaries. But Jesus is calling us to move proactively towards those who are near us in need. To do that like the Samaritan does. The Samaritan, we're told, he took pity on him. A literal word means he had compassion on him. And what did he do with this compassion? We'll go on in verse um, 34. It says, Samaritan saw him and had compassion, took pity on him. And he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, which was about a day's wages, so two days' wages, gave them the innkeeper and said, Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. Jesus shows us here the power of an unlikely neighbor. Jesus says that you and I, you can be a neighbor to someone in need, an unlikely neighbor to someone in need. Now, the good Samaritan, this is the Samaritan, he comes to, he was an unlikely neighbor. This good Samaritan was an unlikely neighbor. The Samaritans and the Jews, you may know they had a lot of hostility and tension between them. There was a history of animosity. The Samaritans were those who had uh, mixed with the Assyrians when the Assyrians invaded. And there was a history of like Jews saw them as uh, there was racial tension and hatred because the Jews saw them as uh, like half-breed would have been language that they would have used at the time. Like they had mixed and intermarried with the Assyrians and their religious practices were different. They weren't worshiping correctly the God of Israel and there was uh, practices and lifestyle and things that they just said, man, we do not like Samaritans. And so the expectation when you hear Jesus telling the story that a Samaritan's coming down the road, you go, man, that's the guy who's going to he might be the robber, right? Like you would expect him to be the one that was maybe the robber who went around the long way to avoid. But Jesus says, the Samaritan, his compassion turned to action. And it's fascinating. That's the same language that's used for Jesus throughout the Gospels. There's this common pattern where it says Jesus saw and had compassion for someone in need, and then Jesus moves towards them and takes action. 
So the Samaritan here is imaging or embodying who Christ is and what he does, that Jesus saw you and took compassion on you and your need and your estate, and he moved towards you and took action on your behalf. The Samaritan, how does he take action? Well, he does three things here. First, he bound him, like he bound his wounds, pouring oil and wine and binding and bandaging them to take care of his wounds, stop the bleeding. He bound him, and then he brought him, right? He put him on his animal, on his donkey, and he brought him. Uh, to the hotel. So he loads him in his Honda Civic, right, and brought him to the Best Western, to this hotel, right, this hostel. He goes to the inn, and he pays two days' wages. And he says, hey, I'm paying for his stay. So he bound him, he brought him, and he bought him, right? He bought him a stay at this hotel. And he says, hey, I'm going away, but I'm going to be back, and I will pay for any expenses that need to be covered. And so the good Samaritan here was an unlikely neighbor, someone that would not have been expected, yet he crossed the boundary and he moved near to become a neighbor to this person in need. And he cared for him sacrificially of his own, what he had to care for him with. When I think of an unlikely neighbor uh, caring for someone in need, I think of Daryl Davis. And Daryl Davis, interesting, there's a picture here. Daryl Davis is a black musician who um, has befriended KKK members. And he has, in this process, he has befriended over 200 members of the Ku Klux Klan and has gotten them to resign their memberships and has gotten their robes from them. So if you go into Daryl Davis's closet at home, he's got 200 KKK robes that he keeps as memorabilia of like a sign of what's happened through these relationships that he's built. He said it started as uh, a black musician playing in places where he, you know, he met someone once and, and, uh, and this, the, in their conversation, he realized, oh my gosh, this person is KKK. And he began asking him questions though and trying to understand where he was coming from. And what he began to realize and what he talks about and stories have been done about him is that um, A, a chief characteristic of pretty much every KKK person he's met, he says, is that they don't know any black people, right? They don't actually know their lives or his stories. And so what he has done is intentionally tried to move near, to draw near to them and to become like a neighbor and to ask questions and to seek to understand their point of view as distorted as it may be, to seek to understand. But then in the process of asking questions and building a relationship to break down misconceptions, he says once they get to know him and get to know his story, they're like, oh, this is bunk, what am I doing? And they resign their membership, they bring their robes to him, and so he's collected over 200 KKK robes by becoming an unlikely neighbor, by drawing near to those that he would have full justification, if anyone would have justification to move away, to go other side of the road, to go around, he would have my blessing and justification to go around, right? And yet, of his own volition, instead, he is crossing those boundaries. He is taking the initiative uh, as an unlikely neighbor to move close to, to draw near to, to get to know, to ask questions. And maybe not physically, but spiritually, these people are in need. And he is crossing that distance to help meet that need. And, and in essence, you could say to set them free from some of the ideology and all they have been held captive to. Daryl Davis is an image of a modern-day Good Samaritan type person. And it makes me think, when Jesus says, after this, you know, so which one was a neighbor to him? He says, the one who showed mercy. Daryl Davis is like showing mercy to these people. 
And when Jesus says this, hey, go and do likewise, what Jesus is saying is to be a true neighbor, it's about more than just geography. It's more than just where you live. It's about how you live towards those you are in proximity to, how you live towards those you are near to. And when I think back to that story of me with the dog bite as a kid and the neighbor that we never spoke to anymore, we had that falling out. The reality is we were not being a neighbor to him. He was not being a neighbor to us. We were not being a neighbor to him because even though we only lived two doors down, we never spoke to each other. We never saw each other. We never addressed the animosity or hostility that existed between our families. I was not a neighbor to him. And this story raises the question, I believe Jesus' teaching here raises the question of who can you be a neighbor to? Who has God put near to you in your life that you can be a neighbor to? Who is close to you? The literal meaning of neighbor, someone who is near. Because I think sometimes what Jesus is not saying here is I think you got to go out and love 7 billion people, right? Like the whole population of the world. It's too many people. You can't go out and just universally love every person on this planet. I don't think that's the point of the story. What Jesus is saying is like the Samaritan and this half-dead person, they were near to one another. They were on the same road together. And the Samaritan was willing to cross those boundaries to minister to and love his neighbor in need, the one who was near to him in need. And so I wonder who has Christ put near to you in your life that he might be calling you to reach out to, to cross to the other side of the road and draw near to. There is what I've found helpful at times is what's been called the proximity principle, that often the teaching Jesus gives is meant to be lived out in our most proximate, intimate life. Like the people that he has placed, our family members, our closest friends, our co-workers, but even people who are near to us, Jesus is saying here, that it might mean crossing a boundary to get to. So what I would love to do right now is take some time in prayer, um, what I call listening prayer, where we come before Jesus and just ask him to minister to us and to reveal if there's anyone, one person that he might be calling you to reach out to this week. And so if you would close your eyes and, and bow your head and let's, let's enter in time of prayer. I want to ask that if you're willing that you might take a moment here to listen and we would ask Jesus who he might be calling you to move towards and draw near to. Jesus, thank you for the Good Samaritan, Lord, and this picture, Lord, I, I, I want to ask right now that you, Holy Spirit, Jesus, you are exalted over all heaven and earth. You are present with us as your people, and you have given us your presence, your spirit. I want to ask you to administer to us as your people, and in our mind, in our heart, that you might draw to the surface the one person, God, the one person who's near to us this, this week you might be calling us to reach out to. Maybe it's someone who is emotionally or spiritually bleeding out right now and you're calling us to draw close and to bandage and to bind and to bring words of presence with them, God. Maybe it is someone who is lonely and you're calling us to bring to them, to bring them a meal or to invite them out to coffee, God. Maybe to buy them a cup of coffee or to show hospitality and be present with them, Lord. Or maybe it's someone, God, that like me this week, you go, man, someone that you failed to be a good Samaritan to. Someone, God, where we have gone around, we've moved away to the other side of the road with someone near to us who is hurting that you're calling us to reach out to and be present with. And so, Lord, I just want to ask right now that, um, that you administer to us as your people and take a moment of silence and I just want to ask that you would reveal 
someone that you might be calling us to reach out to and to be a good neighbor to this week, Lord. And take a moment now in silence. Thank you, Lord. We commit them to you uh, this week. And and God, we want to love and serve, love you, God, and love our neighbor as you have called us to, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the invitation this morning as we come to worship and we come to communion and all these things is we come to Jesus, the great Samaritan. Uh, Jesus, the great Samaritan, that one of the things that the early church loved to observe is that in this story, it has strong gospel echoes, echoes of the gospel that we can often ask. I found myself, where am I in the story? Am I the priest Levite walking around? Am I the Samaritan? Am I the guy beaten up in need? You know, And what the early church loved to say was actually, you and I as the church, we are like the inn and the innkeeper. Let me explain that, right? So Jesus is the great Samaritan who on this road where it's like we started at Mount Zion and Eden and the high place in paradise with God and we have been on this long winding road down to Hades to the underworld like down to death and and on this road now we're like in this condition of half dead and wounded and beaten and helpless on the side of the road and many of the law and the religious folk whoever like can't save us is going around us but Jesus approaches us as the good Samaritan as the one who is the great Samaritan who is other than us who was rejected who was held in animosity by the world and yet he saw us he's had compassion on you he drew close to you and he bound your wounds like covering you with the oil of his spirit and the wine of his blood to purify you and wash your wounds and wrap you and bind you and he brought you when you couldn't carry yourself to safety he brought you himself and carried you to safety and he bought for you refuge in his church that we as the church are like the end that Jesus brings us as the church to his wounded that he has saved and he has rescued and he calls us to take care of them until he returns and so he gave two days wages what comes after the two days the third day which is like a resurrection day that resurrection's coming Jesus is coming back and he tells you and I as the church be the end that we would be the innkeeper who cares for the wounded that he's rescued. And I think of that innkeeper as he sat with this person as nursing him back to health and hearing his story and getting to know with him and walking with him and sharing the news that, hey, this stranger saved you and bought you and paid for you and he's coming back and he's going to take care of the bill. It's all covered because Jesus is for you. He is the great Samaritan. And so as we come to worship, let's worship Jesus who took compassion on us and took action for us and rescued us. And and let's worship as the church who is striving to be faithful, to be that innkeeper who cares for the wounded that Christ brings and who eagerly anticipate his coming and his return that we celebrate with this bread and this cup. I actually realized, I'm not sure how to transition out of here. So, <laughs> all right, I'll just pray. And then one more time we go. Jesus, thank you that you are the great Samaritan who came from heaven to earth. You found us bloody and wounded on the road and you rescued us. And God, you have called us to be that inn of hospitality and presence and rescue and refuge. And we want to be that as your people, God. So Lord, we come to you this morning in a posture of worship because of the way that you have rescued us, God. 
And we come to you in a posture of hope and anticipation, knowing that you are coming back. You're going to pay the bill. You've bought our redemption, God. You've cared for us, and you are nursing us back to health. God, to sing and rejoice full throttle as your resurrection people, God, that your kingdom has come in our lives here as in heaven, Lord. Amen.